0: If you want to open up to Acts 17, I would just want to read a, a passage to you this morning and then uh, talk about what we're going to talk about. We've been uh, exploring some issues related to worldview uh, in here over the, over the four weeks I've been with you. And um, the first week I gave you a handout that's got some different categories, some different elements that make up every worldview. And the first element is everybody has some ultimate source of truth that they're trusting to tell them what's true, what's right, what's just, all those kind of things. And then the second step down on that is, all of those answers are usually encoded in some type of master story, master narrative. And that's what I want to look at today. Um, because this is a, to me, this is a hugely important idea. Uh, and when it, when it comes to almost everything we talk about, Um, this idea of a master story is in the background. So Acts 17, if you'll open up there, there's really a couple of places that we could go to look at what I wanted to look at to illustrate this, but I want to pick up in Acts 17 because what is going on here is uh, very similar to where we are culturally right now in 2023. And uh, Acts 17, this is in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. If y'all remember the story, um, Paul and Barnabas were set apart to do missions work, and the Lord sends him to the nations, uh, so to speak. And so, in the first missionary journey, Paul heads out and makes his way into, um, you know, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and whatnot. And now, in the second missionary journey, he is making his way over into Greece, and uh, that's where we're that's where we're picking up in chapter seventeen. Uh, they have been in. Uh, Thessalonica at the beginning of that, or uh, the southern, in the south, it's uh, Thessalonica, right? Yeah. Um, for some reason, the people from Britain and, and South make it a great pleasure to mispronounce everything. I don't know if I've ever noticed that or not. But anyway, um, so they are, uh, so they've been there, stirred up a lot of trouble. Uh, Paul stirs up trouble. They have to get him out of the city and get him on down the road. While, uh, while his co-workers stay behind to make sure everything is going to come together the way they hope. So verse 16, it, uh, we pick up the story. And I'm going to read to the end of chapter 17 here. This is a sermon. Um, Acts, if you've studied the book of Acts before, Acts is, is really, uh, it tells the story of the early church. But it's also a great collection of sermons by the apostles. Uh, and these are master sermons. Master sermons. I didn't study any. They didn't study any of these in seminary. Uh, if I were to, if I, I'm already getting sidetracked. But if if I were to, if I were to uh, categorize the way they taught us to preach when I was at seminary, and listen, I, I love the schooling I got, but on the preaching side of it, uh, I thought this is exactly what bores people to death and gets them checked out within the first five seconds. Right, the, the method that they taught. And second, we didn't study any. We didn't study any like biblical sermons to see how they did it. Finally, one guy in his class said, uh, in, uh, uh, in, when we were taking Acts, uh prof was uh, going through Acts and we hit Peter's first sermon. And the prof said, and I still use this today, he said, this is a perfect sermon. It's a perfect sermon in that it can be preached in under five minutes. Right? It references the Old Testament and shows how it connects to Jesus. And at the end of it, everybody said, "Well, what are we supposed to do?" Right? Perfect sermon. And one of the guys in class said, "Yeah, well, Peter wouldn't have passed the preaching class in here." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the 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 point in that these sermons are just absolutely fantastic. And this is one that y'all have probably read before. Acts seventeen sixteen. Let's just let's let's do the setup. Uh, This introduces the sermon for us. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his uh, uh, Timothy, Silas, uh, they're with him, but they're still back uh, trying to get things settled after the big uproar. So while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's gone ahead to Athens, Greece. It says, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, right? So Paul is speaking to the Jewish people and the devout people. These are probably the, the, the God-fearers. These are Gentiles who are not Jewish culturally, but they are interested in the God of the Jews. So they're, they're, they will uh, come and find out what's going on there. Uh, he's also reasoning people in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. And uh, uh, let me just make point of this. Look at that word, verse 70, he is reasoning you see that? He's, just, he's talking to him. He's, he's probably doing question and answer with him, And I know that because of what happens just a little, little bit later. Now verse 18, it says, Now some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So now we've got these two uh, philosophical schools, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics. I'm not going to go into detail, but you can imagine that the worldview of the Epicureans are going to be very different from the worldview of the Jews. Right? Very, very different. And in fact, the Epicureans were at odds with the Stoics. Epicureans thought the Stoics were nuts, and the Stoics thought the Epicureans were nuts. So in this one passage, you've got Paul, who is a Jewish Christian. You've got Jews and God-fearers. You've got the Epicureans and the Stoics. You've got at least four different worldviews there. Four different people with different answers about what life is all about, right? And how things really work. And really, they're living in different master stories. And that's what we're going to talk about here in just a second. And so uh, they said... Uh, oh, and notice, and also some of, the, um, those, some of those were conversing with Paul. And in the middle of verse 18, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. There it is. See that? He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection which to all those other groups is absolute insanity, right? <laughs> we know what he's saying about Jesus, but he's making a big deal about the resurrection. He's been raised from the dead, right? <clears throat> uh, so verse 19, they, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, we want to know more about this new teaching that you're presenting. Uh, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 20, what these things mean. Verse 21, now see if this sounds familiar. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Alright? The cult, the church of what's happening now. I just want the newest thing. I want to hear, I don't care what it is. Just give me something new so I can stay distracted. All right. <laughs> That, I don't know. That, I hope that resonates with y'all. It sounds very familiar to me. Uh, notice, I also love this, that they're at least interested enough to hear what Paul has to say. Right? They want to bring him forward. Hey, come on, tell us something new here. So he gets up, and he, uh, great sermon, it's a fantastic sermon. Verse 22, it says So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, uh, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I will proclaim to you. That, man, that's a great intro, right? Uh, by the way, most scholars believe Paul knows he's read ancient rhetoric. Um, at this time, you know, you've got Greek writers that, are, that have written volumes on how do you speak in public. And win your audience so that you can hear, so that they can hear what you're saying. And one of the first rules is you need to praise your audience and make them feel good, right? And show that you're respecting them as people who are worthy to hear what you have to say. That's what Paul does. I can see. I? It's kind of a backhanded compliment because in a minute Paul's going to turn it around. He says, I perceive that you're re- very religious in every way. Look at all these objects of worship. Now I'm going to tell you about the one that you don't know about, <laughs> the one that has the inscription to the unknown God. And then look at what he does, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, so that they would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. And also, for we are indeed His offspring. Um. Paul is quoting from Stoic uh, philosophers there, right? Um, Getting the hand in with the Stoics a bit. Verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So, now look at this, verse 30, These times of ignorance God has overlooked. There's There's the... there's the return. I can see y'all are very religious, but you're completely ignorant. Right? That's what he's saying here. <laughs> but, but God has overlooked these times. And now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has, made, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right. Now, look at that. It took me less time to read that. Uh, well, I mean, it took me a little bit more time to read it than Paul would have said it, right? Even making even making comments on it. And still, it's under five minutes. Now, look at what happens. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among them also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Right. Now, when uh, I, I used to have a Bible and there when it began Paul's sermon, the heading right there at the top of verse 22 was Paul preaches the Gospel in Athens. There's a big problem with that heading. Where's the Gospel in that? Right. If you go and look in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, hey, I passed on to y'all what's the first importance, the first things of the gospel. That is, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised according to the scriptures. And then he was seen by many, right? Those are the first things. Jesus died for our sins, and he was buried, and he was raised. You, if you're going to preach the gospel, you have to say that. Where does Paul say any of that here? Nowhere. This is what Paul is doing here. Paul is creating the context so that these people can understand the gospel. Right? You follow me? Before people can understand why Jesus has to die for our sins and why He has to be buried and why He has to be raised from the dead, you have to have that put in the right larger story. Right? The, the larger master story. Now let me show you what I mean by that. If you look on, If you look on the handout that I gave you, uh, I've, I've got some quotes for you, and I'm going to tie this into what we're talking about here. Uh, the first quote is from Joseph Campbell, his book Creative Mythology. Um, I, lo- I love reading Joseph Campbell. He's, he's wrong in almost all of his conclusions, but his, um, his, his work is absolutely phenomenal uh, in terms of you know, the way cultures develop and so forth. But in Creative Mythology, he's got one of my favorite quotes of all time. Uh, I think this is where a lot of people experience and feel this quote. It's the very first one on the page. Uh, Campbell says, Life is like arriving late for a movie, having to figure out what was going on without bothering everybody with a lot of questions, and then being unexpectedly called away before it ends. Right? <laughs> In other words, most people go through life, they don't know how they got here. Right? I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And as I'm trying to figure out what's going on, I'm going to die and be called out before I get to see the end of the story. So how in the world do you ever figure out what's going on, right? And that's, that's why we need this, what I call the master story. And at, down at the bottom of the page, I'm going to save that middle quote for just a second. Down at the bottom of the page, I've got what I've, the way I define a master story. Uh, there I say life has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Life comes to us as a story. And let me just say something about that. We, we grew up in the South. All of us, I think, have had enough time in the South, if you, even if you didn't grow up here, to where at some point you've heard the word story in a very negative way. I grew up hearing my grandmother tell me, now don't you tell stories, right? And what she meant by that was don't lie. So in the South, sometimes there's this negative connection that, that stories are inherently lies, right? And that's not what we're talking about, right? Now stories can be lies, and if, you, and if you turn on the TV today, you're gonna, every story you're going to see is a lie, <laughs> all right? It is leading you astray in one way or another from the one true God. Now, that's not true. 99% of the time it's true, but y'all get what I'm saying here. And so what I mean by story is, is story is just the way we talk about life, right? And the way we encode life and communicate it when we all get together. And y'all know if you read the Bible... The great majority of it is narrative. right? You open up to Genesis 1.1. 1, 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And the Spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep. Right? It's a story. It's a narrative that begins and moves on. And the difference that we believe about that narrative is that that narrative is true truth. It's reality. That is telling us what actually happened. Not some mythology that as Paul says here in uh, Acts 17, was made up from the mind and the imagination of man. We believe that that narrative is telling us something. When Jesus begins to teach, what does he use? More often than not, his parables, which are short stories. And it's, it's, it's really amazing when people realize, when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, that story did prob- probably, he's not talking about something that actually happened. Because of its ridiculous nature, right? He has created that story to make a point. And that story, even though he's not rehearsing something that just happened last week, that story is powerful and profound and communicates eternal truth. Be merciful like your heavenly Father is merciful. And be merciful to everybody. That's how you know who your neighbor is, right? So Jesus uses stories. To communicate truth in a very powerful way. Lord, again, I said this first week, aren't y'all so glad he didn't use PowerPoint? In fact, I bet many of you, right now, if I were to ask you, tell me the parable of the Good Samaritan, you would do a pretty good job of getting through that parable, right? Because stories are easily remembered, right? Stories also do something that there's only only one other art form. They can really do this powerfully, and that is, it, it, they can move us at our emotional depths. Right? PowerPoint. I've never sat through a PowerPoint that I wound up in tears at the end of. <laughs> now, I've I've laughed at quite a few, right, right, at the utter insanity that's going on in front of you, but it doesn't move us. Right? A good movie can do that. A good story can do that, and even more powerfully, kind of tying into. What's happening with the Missions Conference this year? Music can do that far and above anything else, right? Uh, one of my favorite quotes about music, being a musician, uh, former musician, sort of kind of, I don't get to play as much as I like to, but my favorite quote about music is, all art aspires to the condition of music. Right? All art aspires to the condition of music. That's why when you go to see a movie, right, it's got a soundtrack to it. And that soundtrack is cueing you in on, oh, we're in trouble. Oh, no, this is funny. This is whatever. Right? So these arts are very, very important. But they, they, they all support this primary idea of storytelling and encoding our truth in these stories. And there is everybody has a master story that, uh, that, that cues us in to what's going on in life. And we know it's a master story because a master t- story answers four basic questions. And those are at the bottom of the page down there. Uh, they answer the, the question of where we come from? Alright, the question of origin. Now, stop right there. Think about Paul's sermon, right? After he gives them praise about being very religious and right having the altar to the unknown God and telling them, I'm going to tell you about that today. He then says this, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Right? And then he goes on to say, and, from, and he... From one man made every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. There is one God who created everything, and he created one man. And from that one man, we're all standing here today, right? That's, that's, that's the question of origin. Stoics believe something very different about that. Y'all can go look them up. Epicureans believe something different. The Romans at the time. Uh, believed that they were the the prime race, right? And the story of Romulus and Remus, if you remember all that from history, had very different things. Paul begins with, there is one God, He's Lord of heaven and earth, and there was one man from whom all of the other nations are headed toward. Then uh, the second question, and and you kind of have to answer them in this order, and this is why I have them laid out here. The second question is this, where are we heading? This is the question of destiny. Uh, where are things going? And uh, Paul answers that in the sermon too. Verse 30, he says, These times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Uh, we talked about that earlier. Change the way you're thinking about everything. Because, verse 31, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Right, that tells us where we're headed. This God who created everything and has created us all through this one man who appeared, He's also fixed the day when the whole world will be judged in righteousness by a man whom He appointed. Now, I want you to think about this sermon. How many times does Paul mention the name Jesus in this sermon? Not once, right? And this is and this is what I this sermon is genius. Because that, raises, that causes people to raise the question, right? Wait, Who is this God? Who is this one man that you're saying all the other nations from? And especially, who do you think this one man is that I'm going to have to give an account of my life at the end of time? Judgment, right? In righteousness. Who is this guy, right? That's what good... Uh, <laughs> good preaching never gives the answers up front. Never. You've got to let people stew on it, Right? And if they don't stew on it and if they don't ask the questions, there's nothing you can do to help them anyway. (laughs) Right? We don't really internalize things until we connect with things in a way that we ask the right questions. And and in modern times, we don't give people enough time to think about the questions. Right? We We don't lay the questions out and let them simmer over it over a week. You know, let them brew on it. Think about it. well, what did he mean by that? Where's this going? Paul does that, and these are all the right questions: the question of origin, the question of destiny, where they're headed, and then uh, and then these last two questions that I have here on your sheet: uh, why are we here? That's the question of meaning and purpose. That's the first question that we generally ask, right? And that's the one that every human being is searching for the answers to. And in, in 2000, I read a survey. Um, it was uh, it was a survey on Basically, asking if you could have any question answered for you, what would that question be? And they, you know, they poll people in the United States. The number one question by far was, what is the meaning of life? That's what everybody wanted to know. And the fact that they were asking that question meant that back in 2000, the great majority of people that they polled had no clue how to answer that question, which to me was the more devastating thing, right? What is the meaning of life? That question has gone unanswered, or answer, answered in a very terrible way, for the last twenty years, and that's why we're at the, that's why we're in the mess we're in right now in 2023, because all the answers that have been given to that question have been completely unsatisfying. Right, uh, the, the wrong answers, the wrong, wrong issues. So, why are we here? The issue of meaning and purpose, and then uh, the fourth question: How should we live? Or Francis Schaeffer says: How should we then live? Uh, that 's the question of ethics uh, ethics that then translate into your morality uh, what 's right what 's wrong what 's good what 's true what 's beautiful what 's ugly all those kind of things um, fall out there now th- those four things are the questions that make up uh, the the larger story, the master story that every worldview has and the reason that I wanted to end with this today is um, in, in my time teaching, one of the things that that 's really hit me is so many Christians don't know the master story. They've, they've, they've gone to church and we've gotten bits and pieces of things. And and I know this because when I was teaching at Bible college, one of the first assignments I used to give in one of my classes was, uh, you have one page in ten minutes, tell me the story of the Bible. Write it down for me. What's the story? Uh, and they say, wait a minute, I don't know that I can do that. And I say, well, now you got five minutes. Go. Right? Um, and it was amazing, the kind of answers I would come up with. Very rarely did people, could they put things in. And this is at Bible college. This is not just out, you know, this is people that have some aspiration to want to know the Scriptures better. Now, again, for my first year in Bible college, I didn't know anything. So, I, you know. Um, but to me, it means that whatever we're doing in the churches, we're not doing some fundamentally important things. Right? And so... Nowadays, y'all know, we, uh, the, the late 90s, we had this great surge in discipleship. Everybody was on the discipleship bandwagon. Now, in the last five, six years, there's a surge for Bible literacy. Uh, things like the chronological Bible study with the maze down in North Mississippi, fantastic. Uh, and really, <laughs> I wish that would have happened in reverse order, because we really need the Bible literacy Before we did discipleship, because now we've got a lot of teaching on discipleship that's not literate about what the Bible teaches on discipleship, right? Uh, Almost everybody has heard the speech on discipleship that discipleship is all about making disciples, right? Go to Matthew 28, last command of Jesus, all power and authority has been given to me, right? Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching to keep everything that I taught you. And remember, I'm with you always. We've got to get together. And if you could disciple two people, those disciples could disciple two people. And we'll change the world. Right? Boom. Man, they've been, we've been preaching that for 100 years. And nothing's changed. Right? Because that's not the way things work. And it, and it bypasses a critical piece of, of, of the story. <laughs> and the story is this. Before you make disciples, you have to know how to be a disciple. And a disciple is somebody who looks like Jesus. So if you're not a disciple who looks like Jesus, you wind up making disciples who don't look like Jesus. And, 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 and the other thing, they don't ever tell you, but the, the, the biblical story is full of this. You go out and get your two people that you're going to disciple. First week y'all meet together, only one of them is going to show up. And the third week, even the second guy is going to have some reason not to come because you bored him too bad the first week, Right? <laughs> Things never work out the way you think they ought to, but what we tune into when we pull back to this master story is it gives us a larger uh, structure for what's happened and, and where we've come from and a direction on how we ought to live and right and then it creates a con- and this is the most important thing it does it creates a context for the gospel because once we push further and I know Paul does this once we push further into those questions of origin right. Where did we come from? That one man that all the other nations have come from, do you know how Paul is going to finish out that story? When they ask him, well, who was that one man? Who was he? Paul's going to finish it like this. Well, I'll tell you who he was. And he ruined it for all of us. Because of him, we were all made sinners. Because of him, he brought condemnation on the whole human race so that unless we have somebody that can come in and fix the mess that he started... We're all in a whole heap of trouble. And by the way, we all come from that one man. We've inherited everything we are from him. Right? Romans 5. He, he would go into that. Now it creates a larger context. And then if you get that far, you got the question, well, who could possibly save us from that mess? And Paul, ah, i got his name too. <laughs> right? Just as the one brought condemnation and death, there's another one that brought life and peace. And I'll tell you how you can know him as well. All right? See, it creates a context for people to ask questions. And that's why, um, just in the last few minutes, look at that quote that's right above those four points there on your handouts. This is from a book from Daniel Taylor called Tell Me a Story. Uh, Daniel Taylor, he's one of my favorite writers. Um, This book, Tell Me a Story, I really wish I could get everybody to read this book. Uh, It's just fantastic for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, Daniel Taylor is a believer. And one of the things that he really emphasizes is, The main way we pass on our beliefs and our values is through the stories that we tell, and especially as parents, if we're not telling our children good stories that are related to our relationship out of the Lord with the Lord, and out of that, it's 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 not going to grab them. So this this book is all about how do you learn how to tell your stories well? How do you learn how to catalog your stories? How long do you you know remember your stories that are important and worth telling? So much of my upbringing was spent around uh, both of my grandfathers and my grandmothers and them telling stories. You know, we, man, we didn't have all the distractions we have today. And we would camp or we'd be at home. And, but Papa, tell me another story about... He was, he was full of them, right? I learned so much from that. I, I, I learned what it, what, what it meant to be a Tyson. Because right? I grew up hearing this. Tysons don't do that. And then immediately after that, there was some act that was only parallel to maybe the wrath of God in some alternate universe, right? Because the story also came with a stern correction that most of them would be put in prison for today. But that's all right. It worked, man. It worked. And I needed it. Um, So here, you are your stories. You're the product of all the stories you've heard and lived. And many that you never heard. I, I love that. They have shaped how you see yourself, the world, and your place in it. And then he, he goes on to talk about these stories that create us, these internalized stories. And he says, Inter- Internalized stories often seem intractable, intractable because they are almost indestructible, essentially impervious to abstract reason, threat, evidence, and bribe. You see that? If people really believe right these, the master story that shaped them, you cannot reason them out of it. You can't talk them out of it. I remember hearing a very famous apologist years ago who was excellent at apologetics and preaching the gospel. And in one of his sermons, he said, I have never argued anybody into the kingdom of heaven, not once. Because that's not how it happens, right? So, what he goes on to say is this, right? So, these stories that create us, these master stories. Let me just ask you this those of you that that have really bought in to the story of Jesus and the Gospel and the story of the Bible, how hard would it be for somebody to argue you into something else? How hard would it be from somebody who's Islamic to argue you to becoming a Muslim? If you think of it, it's impossible. right? Unless this happens. Look at what Taylor says. Getting me to give up the stories that created me requires a replacement story of overwhelming power. He goes on to say, that's what the story of the Scriptures and the Gospels are. If we we have the larger story in the Scriptures and if we have the Gospel that's tied into that, that becomes an overwhelming narrative that most people have never heard before. The, The most often thing that is said to me in, in my ministry, getting to teach, them one one of the things that I love is, you know, we have people that we connect with that are from all different denominations, all different backgrounds. You know, some people are unbelievers. Some people are trying to figure out what's going on. You know, you got you got Baptists and Catholics that I've run into over the years. Methodists. You know, I, I grew up Methodist. Those people can be hard to deal with, right? Uh, <laughs> but um, you get you get from all over the all over the and, and the. And the thing that I most often get is, why have I never heard this before? I mean, it's right here. Why have I never heard this before, right? And we're just studying through the Scriptures. Why has nobody ever told me this before? Some people get really mad about it. One, one, one guy told me, I've been in church all my life. I've never heard any of this. It's like, like we've just been wasting time, you know? Um, Tom Murray, who started True Secrets Fellowship. Some of y'all knew him. He used to say, life is not about killing time until time kills you. <laughs> it's much more than that. I feel like it's what some people have been doing. Now, uh, that the, the, this old woman's story on the back, I'm just going to mention this. Whenever we put this in the context of um, answering all these questions, because Paul has only raised the questions there in Acts 17, but if you look at his other writings, you get how he fills in uh, some of these uh, questions. And so... There, um, on that chart, you, you, you've got the past and the questions related to our origin. Where did we come from, right, as people? Where did humanity come from? Where did the earth come from? Where did the universe come from? Colossians 1. If you go read the Christ hymn in Colossians 1, that answers the question. That, that's one of my favorite sections in, in Paul's letters. A lot of you are familiar with it. But there, uh, basically, Paul says that everything that exists, whether in the heavens or on the earth, have been created in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. And really, in can also be translated by, but I like the in a little bit better there because of the way Paul uses it in that context. Everything's been, everything, now, now think about that for a minute. Everything has been created in or by Christ, right? He is the agent of creation. Everything has been created through him. All right, so he's, he's the one that's overseeing that whole process. And then that last preposition. I've, I've got a book in my head I've been working on for years. It's just on the prepositions of the Bible. In, for, by. And how important those are. Uh, vast like oceans of theology often hinge on just a little preposition. Right? And this is one of them. Through, uh, through and for. If I say everything has been created for Jesus Christ, what does that mean? It's all His. And it's all working towards Him, right? This whole earth has been created for Him. He's the one that created everything for Himself. So when we look in, and this is one of the major uh, uh, statements of the Bible, when we look into creation, who do we see? Jesus. This is His world. right? Now, we have to filter that through. We've had a fall and everything's gone wrong. But even with all of that, you can still see through. And I don't know if y'all, in the last month, uh, I go to pick my daughter up in the afternoons. Usually around the time of sunset. In the last month, we've had some of those incredibly glorious sunsets in Memphis I've ever seen in my entire life. I don't know if y'all have seen them. And you just want to worship in your car. Sometimes I do. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. You know, just on this mundane car ride, I didn't even know that color existed. Look at that, right? And it's up there. We see him in that, right? Uh, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Psalm 19. Everything, everything in creation in some way leads us back to Jesus. Think about, uh, think about how complex we are. It, it, it baffles the mind, right? Everything created by through for Jesus. Uh, let me jump forward. Uh, where is everything headed? Ephesians 1. You go read Ephesians 1 and Paul makes the case there that everything is ultimately going to be headed up or summed up in Jesus. Everything's going to be brought together in Him. Where is everything going to head? Well, it's going to be summed up, headed up, brought together in Jesus. In Colossians 1, he talks about everything being reconciled in Christ. Right? Everything's going to be brought together, shaken out, put in its proper place. That's what that means. Um, and for some people, that's going to mean you're going to be out of His presence. Because you didn't love Him and you didn't want anything to do with Him. And even in the world to come, you're not going to want anything to do with Him. right? But you're going to be reconciled to Him right? and put in a place where He gives you exactly what you want. That is, not to have anything to do with Him anymore. Right? But this is the problem. He is the source of life. He is the source of everything that's good. He is the source of everything that's true. He is the source of everything that's beautiful. So if you don't want Him, you don't get any of those things as well. And that's what hell, that's what the lake of fire is. People who reject the goodness of God... He finally says, okay, you didn't like how I handled it? Y'all handle it, right? Really, that's what the book of Revelation is about. The Lord just turning creation back over to humanity who wants to be in charge of everything. Oh yeah, by the way, y'all, those demons that I've kept down in the abyss for thousands of years, not letting them out, y'all take care of them now, right? And here they come, right? And everybody's like, oh Lord, what do we do? Right? So everything is going to be summed up in Christ, headed up in Ephesians 1. And then finally, Hebrews 1, the meaning and purpose of life. Everything now is held together. It's moved along by Christ, right? So let me ask you this. Uh, If everything's been created by, in through by for Jesus, everything's been moved along in by Christ, everything's going to be headed up in Christ, then what should I be doing in this life? What should I be doing? What's my assignment? What should I do, right? Simple. I better find out who Jesus is. I better get to know the One who created me, who sustains me, right? Who's moving everything along and who is ultimately, everything's going to be summed up in Him. That's what, that's what our master story leads us to and tells people, right? And as Christians, we've got to recapture that. It's not enough to say, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You've got to create the context. We have to create the context so that people will ask the question, why would I want to know Jesus anyway? What difference does He really make? Okay? And that's what this master story can do for us. Now, y'all, that's a lot in a short period of time. But uh, I- I've enjoyed being with y'all. I'm, I'm working on all this stuff. Uh, it's it's going to be on our website this year, and I'm also working on a book that's going to go along with it. Oh, hoping to get that uh, out and about. So if you're interested in that, uh, y'all can check in on our website, and I'll have some stuff about that uh, coming up. As we go forward. Now, as we close out, do I am I praying or is somebody else praying? Okay, looks like I'm praying. Yeah, there. What you're describing about the story and yeah. the beginning and the end and where we're all going. Yeah. This dawned on me in 1965 and 1966 yeah. when I learned about dispensationalism. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. That puts everything in context. Yeah. And it's not something, just who cares. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, for me, going to a dispensational seminary, you know, at Dallas, I was going to mention this earlier. and It totally slipped my mind, and uh, we got to go here, but very quickly. When I was at seminary, one of the major, like this, was one of those epiphany moments. Uh, in one of the missions class, they showed a film that New Tribes Missions had put out called Tau. Have any of y'all seen Itau? If you have not ever seen that, I think they have it online now. Go go look up New Tribes Missions. I can't tell you how to spell it. It's like E-E-apostrophe-T-A-W-O or something like that. I can't remember how to spell it. But basically what it was about was uh, new, new Tribes' missions was going into new areas where people had not heard the gospel, and they weren't being very successful in getting people to believe the gospel and whatnot. So a couple of them said, well, maybe maybe they don't have the context for it. So New Tribes ran an experiment in Papua New Guinea where they went in, they, they took in a map, and they, they showed them where, look, okay, y'all are on the map here the world is much bigger we 're from way over here, right and then they uh, took that to, to begin in Genesis, right? God creates everything, and what they did, they just took them through the story of the Bible right? and, and and this is cataloged in this film, they, you know creation and you get Noah and the flood, and then you get to Abraham, and you get the, to the sacrifice of Isaac right and as they 've been telling the story the they oh and they would stop at all the cliffhangers. <laughs> Okay, we're going to stop for today. We'll come back for tomorrow. Right? That's why. That gets people to thinking. Right? So they got to the point where, where Abraham is, is uh, going up to sacrifice Isaac. He's got the knife pulled. We'll pick that up right there tomorrow. Right? <laughs> the tribal leaders are so bit out of shape, they have a meeting overnight. They come to the missionaries in the middle of the night beating on the door. And they say, we don't know what Abraham is going to do, but even if he kills his son... God will have to bring Isaac back from the dead because He has to make good on His promises. Right now they're thinking through the story. They tell Him all the way through. They get to Jesus, you know, teaching, crucifixion, cliffhanger. Put Jesus on the cross. Come back tomorrow to see how this ends, right? Uh, or I think they put Him in the grave, right? Got to come back. He says, the whole tribe goes into mourning and weeping. How could they kill this perfectly righteous man? Then the next day they talk about the resurrection and the aftermath of it. And by and large, that whole tribe becomes believers. Right? And the tribal elders are, everybody must believe that this is the true story. Right? And E Tau is their like the word that they would yell when they heard about the resurrection. It's true. It's true. Right? It's the best thing we've ever heard. And I remember I remember sitting there watching that film and my mind was blown. Because I thought nobody ever did that for me. nobody ever did that for me right I mean if, if maybe my life would have been a little bit different because my teenagers were just a swirling mess of chaos, you know my, my teenagers didn't have that larger story, and I knew this I was sinning worse than anybody could even possibly imagine and try as hard as I might. i couldn 't do the things that I knew I ought to do, so I'm just going to give up. I'm done with this, this ain't working, right. But then that larger story would have created hope maybe created dots. But this is the other thing I know. the Lord knew that I wouldn't be able to understand what they'd even meant until I got to seminary, right? <laughs> uh, so you know, uh, look that up, if you haven't seen it, because for me, that was like an epiphany. that shame, that, I remember that day, I, and it was toward the end of my seminary experience. I remember that day leaving thinking, I'm going to have to rethink everything. I had to repent, right? <laughs> I have literally got to rethink. Everything about what I was doing teaching, and that has shaped me from this point, from that point forward. If people don't know the larger story, there's a larger story behind the letter of the Colossians. If you don't know that larger story, you're going to miss Colossians. There's a larger story behind the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. If you don't know that larger story, you're going to miss it. There's a larger story, behind, right? You follow me? There's a larger story behind each of those that helps us understand what's going on, and it always creates context. And if we miss those things, we're going to miss the message that the Lord has given. And so we need to do that work to get in and figure out what those things are. All right, y'all, now I've gone over too long. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll just miss. Uh, it's great to be with y'all. and See ya.